don't know that I've ever seen a coin flip to decide the last hymn. Just tells me even as I get old that there's new things I haven't experienced yet. Turn to Colossians. And by the way, Ricky, there is an uh, app that you can put on your phone, which there's an app that you can put on your phone that flips coins, and so you don't have to chase your coin. <clears throat> Tonight I'd like to talk about a subject that uh, the Lord's laid on my heart. I was teaching through Colossians and came across some verses, and I said, hmm, what does that mean? One of the things to be a good Bible student, you have to be curious. And so you come to a passage and you say, what does that mean? And what is the Bible trying to tell me? What's the Spirit trying to tell me? And you have to stop and think. So we're going to look at two verses in Colossians and then we'll go from there. So Colossians 1. I rarely title my messages and I'm always amazed when they end up on the internet with a title. Since I rarely title messages that the person who puts them on the internet usually has to come up with something. Colossians 1, and we're going to read verse 16. For by him, that is Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Turn over to chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19 says, And not holding the head. From which all the body by joints and bands of nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight, and as we're reminded in the song, Father, we came to you when we were without strength and your son paid it all. And yet, Father, we sometimes fail to recognize that we are still in and of ourselves without strength. And there's sometimes we think that we are able to do something, that we are able to accomplish something in our own strength. And so, Father, as we come tonight, we'd ask that you would remove those thoughts of pride, that you would remove any selfishness, but that, Father, you would allow us simply to be vessels meet for the master's use. Earthen vessels that, in fact, must be broken in order for the glory and the power and the wisdom of God to shine forth. So, Father, that's our desire, and we would pray that you would grant that to us. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Now, the headship of Christ, we could have a whole lesson on that, but I don't think that's necessary. I think most of you realize what Paul means when he writes about the headship of Christ. We tend to pride ourselves in the assembly as it being a distinctive of the assemblies, the headship of Christ. We would even tell people that we don't have a pastor because we believe in the headship of Christ. We'd even go farther to suggest that the head covering is a sign of the headship of Christ. And yet, as I read to second chapter, 
And I read that Paul has this of not holding the head. And I have to ask myself, what does Paul mean by not holding the head? And I travel from assembly to assembly. I think sometimes lip service is giving to the fact that he's the head of the church. But I have to wonder if, in fact, we practice Christ as the head of the church. I'm going to suggest six ways that it's important that we hold the head or six things that it takes to hold the head. The first one is spiritual exercise. The second one is patience. The third is dependence. The fourth is prayer. The fifth is endurance. And the final one is trust of their fellow believers to put it into practice. Let's look at Ephesians 5 and 17. Ephesians 5 and 17 and Colossians 3 are two very parallel passages. They're familiar passages to us. But I would say that in order to hold the head, it takes spiritual exercise. That in order to truly have a New Testament assembly, that we must have New Testament power. And sometimes we have failed in that area. Ephesians 5 and 17. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Turn over to Colossians 3, and we'll look at a parallel passage to that. Paul's going to write the Colossians and basically say much the same thing. In Colossians 3 and verse 15, he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I believe that Paul in these two passages gives evidence of New Testament power. Number one, that peace rules. Notice where peace needs to rule. Peace needs to rule to which also you're called in one body. Peace needs to rule in the body. It's not easy to have peace rule in the body. You get people with strong opinions. You get people with strong wills. You get people from differing backgrounds. And sometimes peace is difficult. But if the Spirit of God, or I think these are parallel thoughts, the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, and the idea here is that you're under the control of. In Ephesians, he compares being drunk with wine or under the control of alcohol or being under the control of the spirit. People do things under the control of the alcohol that maybe they wouldn't normally do 
Well, hopefully, for the better, when we're under the control of the Spirit, we do things that are more spiritual because the Spirit's in control. And this one, the idea is let the Word of God Christ dwell in you richly. The idea to dwell is to be at home, to be in control of the house, to be under His authority and His Word. Notice in both passages that thankfulness is a result. Thankfulness is a result. Gratefulness. Of all people who should be thankful, Christians should be most thankful. Those who are under control of the Spirit or have the Word of God dwell in them richly are most thankful. And then I think in both you'll see that the things of Christ freely, freely flow from our lips in songs and spiritual songs as well as to speaking to each other. It's sad when the sins of breaking of bread is over, a different subject would come up. And sometimes that's because we have other things on our mind and we're occupied with other things and we're under the control of other things than Christ. And then the final in both passages, submission. Submission. In this passage in Colossians, he goes on, if you'll start with verse 18 through the second verse of chapter 4, and he talks about different categories and how they are to submit. Submission is a sign that you are under the control of the Spirit. A submission is a sign that you're truly thankful. Turn over to 2 Timothy 2, if you would. We are going to be looking at a few verses. Not normally my habit to do Bible studies and turn to a lot of verses. But in this time, we are going to look at several verses. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, And the servant of, God, of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. So one of the things, points is, it takes patience. First one was, it takes spiritual exercise. The second one is, it takes patience. Notice, the servant of God must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience. Patience. Something that even in my old age I struggle with. Colossians 1. Don't forget that verse because that's a very important verse tonight. 2 Timothy 2. Colossians 1 and verse 10. That we might walk worthy. Colossians 1 and verse 10. That we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Patience is a characteristic of God. It's something that characterizes God and should characterize us. I was studying the Old Testament. It dawned on me I wouldn't have done well in the Old Testament. As I talked about expectations this morning, I would have had expectations that would have led to a great deal of impatience but how many times as you go through the old testament was a situation 
where there was a need for a deliverer and God comes along and he promises a child. You see that with, with Manoah in the case of Samson. You see that with Moses. You see that with the Messiah. And I'm thinking if I need to deliver, I don't want to wait nine months for a child to come. I don't want to wait like 21 years for him to get old enough to do any delivery. And like 22 or 23 years, this seems like eternity. I know it was eternity when I was 21, but now even though at my old age, it seems fairly like a long time. And yet, God's promise was that a child would come. And so I have to stop and say, boy, am I that patient? If he came to me and said, yes, there is a situation, it's a difficult situation, and in 22 years I'm going to raise up someone to fix that, would I be patient? Would I be patient? We tend to want instant gratification. We want it done now. Everything is urgent. We do the expedient thing. We do the pragmatic thing because it needs to be resolved now. And I think that is the next point. I think it's a lack of dependence. Over to Zechariah 4 and 6, if you would. It's a famous verse. It's a verse most of you know. And then he answered. When I used to teach Sunday school, we made sure we all used the same Bible, and then I could tell you the page number. It made it a little easier. Zechariah 4 and 6 says this, Then he answered and spoke unto him, me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but, my, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Dependence. Dependence. We want to solve it now. I do some marriage counseling. And most of the men that I do with are fixers. They want to fix the problem. They want to resolve the issue. They want to fix it. And unfortunately, men are often the leaders in the assembly, rightly so. And they want to get it resolved and fixed. And sometimes they resolve to their own might and their own power. And they're not patients. But their lack of waiting on the Lord shows a lack of dependence. What's a great sign of dependence? We read it from 2 Timothy, meekness. Meekness, why is a servant of God not to strive but be meek? Pre-adventure that God will change their mind. It's not within my power. It's not within my strength to change anyone's mind. The sooner I realize that, the better off I am. I can teach what I believe the word of God clearly teaches. But the rest is up to God, not me. And I'm not responsible for change. But I serve a God who changes hearts.
and it is in his power to change. My job is to be patient and not to strive and to be dependent. James 3 and 13 says this, Who is the wise man and dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out the good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Meekness is, some would say, strength under control. Meekness is realizing it's not going to be my force of will that changes the situation. It's going to be God. It's going to be God. I'm not responsible to change. I'm not responsible to fix the problem. I'm responsible for myself. We're praying on the third Sunday of every month for repentance or, and, and revival. And the first thing is, start with me. I think Micah said that during the missionary conference. The revival has to start with me. It's not me changing people. It's me being changed. And that's what we're talking about. Meekness is being changed. Prayer is a sign of dependence. But prayer is part of seeing him as the head. I go someplace. They say, let's pray about this. They said, great. I say, what was the answer? They didn't wait for an answer. They'd already decide what to do. If we're going to pray, let's, say, let's wait for the answer. Ephesians 6, 8, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication of all the saints. If we're going to pray, it involves watching. It's not praying and then doing the pragmatic thing. It's not praying and doing what you desire to do. It's praying and watching. It's praying and watching. How often do we pray and not wait for an answer? And we just end up doing what seems right to us, our pragmatic. And I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty. I got peace about it, so I'm going to do it. I didn't give God a chance to show me that not to have peace. I sort of forged ahead in my own way. And in Colossians 4 and 2, he says, continuing in prayer and watching the same with thanksgiving. Notice how many times in Scripture, praying and watching, praying and watching. Praying and watching. If you pray, you have to watch and wait for an answer. And then the final, the, the, the next point was endurance. And endurance is often translated as long-suffering in, in, in the King James. So you notice how these, some of these things tie together. Patience, dependence, praying, and long-suffering. It's hard to suffer long. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said this in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. I've got to guard my heart against being cynical. I go someplace, I teach my own assembly, other assemblies, and there doesn't seem much of a change. And I'm not telling you I'm suffering, but I'm telling you that there has to be patience, waiting. The Lord spoke to me years ago, driving home from a camp meeting. 
It was a long drive and it was very late at night, like two in the morning. And I was frustrated having driven all the way up here for a camp meeting, driving all the way back because I don't think anything got done at the camp meeting. It seemed like it was a total waste of my time. And I thought I'd made some rather brilliant logical arguments about why we should do what we needed to do. Go figure. And the Lord said, so if you talked them all into it and they did it, who would have got the glory? And I went, duh. Of course. So why are we to be watching in prayer? Why are we to be dependent? Why should we be patient? Why should we endure in long-suffering? Because when God does it, he gets the glory. And I said this morning, God's ways are absolutely perfect. They're above our way of finding out. We force the issue because we have this urgency about us. God doesn't have that urgency. We force the issue because we're partial in our knowledge and we can't see any way but have it happen right now. We force the issue because we think that the problem is so big it has to be resolved instantaneously or the whole place is going to collapse. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. To be patient, to be meek, to be long-suffering. Yes, we are to teach. We are to upraise Christ. We are to hold him up. But that's where our responsibility ends. Colossians 1 and 11 says this. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. I love this verse. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power unto patience and long-suffering and joyfulness. It's tough to be joyful when you're cynical, so I've got to guard my heart constantly about being cynical. Lord, I've been there ten times, I've preached five times, and no, there is no reaction, and there doesn't seem to be any change. It's hard to be joyful. But notice what he combines here. Patience, long-suffering, <laughs> with joyfulness. With joyfulness. Why? Because it's not me. It's not me. I've been working with one assembly almost six years, and I will tell you, I've seen the Lord work. It's been six slow years to me. It's not 21 years. It's been six. But I've seen him work. And when I see him work, I see him, that he gets the glory and that Christ is truly the head. Because men have resisted doing what they think is right. They've resisted doing what they think is a pragmatic thing. They resist what, doing what they think is the expedient thing. So if we're dependent, we're watching in prayer, and we'll be able to endure with joyfulness as we wait for the answer. If we're independent, we'll get frustrated. There'll be no joy. We'll become cynical. And unfortunately, sometimes, especially with young men, and this has been, I think, a problem of the assemblies is young men have left, have left 
because they desire some changes and they, and they see some hypocrisies and they see some things that need to be changed and they're not being changed rapidly enough or there seems to be hindrances and they leave and go find another place to fellowship. I want to tell you that God's more interested in what he's doing in you. And yes, you might be suffering, but God's using that trial to teach you things. And when we start running from trials, I don't know where it stops. Is every time the going gets tough, if you run, when do you finally stop when the going gets tough and face it and battle through it? God has some really important things to teach us. Over to Romans 4, if you would. Uh, Romans 5, sorry. Go to Romans 5. Let's just look at that for a second. The Bible clearly teaches that there's suffering before glory. And Lord Jesus suffered before glory. We read in Romans 8 that they're suffering before glory. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that they're suffering before glory. Suffering's not easy. I'm not up here to tell you I've suffered a great deal of my life, and suffering's not easy. I've seen people suffer. I've seen people suffer, but I, I know what the promise is, and I know what the Word of God says. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. I don't know that I'm at the point where I glory in tribulation. I don't know that I'm at the point that I glory in tribulation. But Paul says that we glory in tribulation also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. As I counsel young men, that's what I'm always telling them. Tribulation worketh patience. Wait and see God work. If you're wait and you're willing to wait and you're not willing to go forth in the flesh, and Abraham's a great example of this, God made a promise to him. He waited as long as he could wait and then he went forward in the flesh. And we have the Arab nation as a result. And when he thought it was hopeless and God wasn't going to work, that's when God worked. Because why? Because when it was hopeless is when God got the glory. And if Abraham had waited, he would have seen God get the glory. So patience leads to us. Tribulation leads to patience because we realize that God in his time, that it will be perfect. And it will be absolutely what we need. And patience, experience, or character but we're able then to trust. It's hard to trust and be dependent and pray and watch during difficult times. I'm not telling you it's easy. But if you will pray and watch and have patience, it builds patience, it builds experience, and experience hope. Because when you see the mighty hand of God work, I tell you, there's nothing that will build hope more. When you see a situation that's a wreck and there's hopeless and there's no chance that it's ever going to be set aright, and you see God, even if it takes time, you see God's hand in it and it changes things, then you know you have a God to hope in. 
You have a God you can count in. Maybe not to do it in your time, not to do it on your calendar, not to do it when you hoped it would get done. But when you see him work, you have a hope in God. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And the end result is love. It's easy to be meek when you've seen God work. You're eager to see God work again. You realize the fruit of the flesh will never lead to the, to the work of God. And you stop working in the flesh, and you become patient, and you become meek, and you look forward to excitement. I was I was at a prayer meeting, and I thank God for a trial that he brought into the assembly that I was praying with. And after we were going around saying things we were thankful for, and the elder looked me in the eye and said, you've rebuked me, I'm not thankful for this trial yet. But I could see how God was using the trial to get his perfect will done. You know, unfortunately, trials come and we pray that the trial be alleviated or the trial go away. And maybe we should be praying that God uses that trial to bring about what he desires that trial to bring about. As I said this morning when Trevor was in the hospital and the first person got saved, he said, selfishly, he said, okay, Lord, heal my daughter, we can go home now. I accomplished what you wanted me to be here for. Well, that's selfish in a way, but that's why we see trials. We see them as, as a means to an end instead of seeing how God might work and how God might work in us to cause us to be more patient, more long-suffering, and endure. And then over, go back to Colossians 2, if you would, and I, I want to address this last subject. is trust. Trust in your fellow believers. This isn't easy. This is not easy. Because in 2.19, he says, and not holding the head, and notice what he says is the result of not holding the head or what needs to be done in order to hold the head. He says, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 12, and it's not my, in the few minutes we have left, to give you a discourse on gifts. I'm thankful for those who prayed tonight about the use of gifts. But it's important that everyone in the body is important. There's no one in the body who hasn't been given something that is important to the function of the body. Now, there's two grave errors on each side of that. The one who says, I'm the most important, and what I know and what I do and what I have to say is the most important, and I don't have need of all you rest of the body parts. That's a grave error. But the other grave error is saying, I'm of no use to the body because I'm just lonely old little old me who doesn't really have too much to offer. And that's a grave error because notice what this passage says. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment and knit together increases with the increase of God. I am thankful for those body members who have taught me about things such as compassion. If there's law and grace, and the Lord Jesus was a perfect mixture of both, I tend to be the law person. 
and I struggle to show grace, but I've had people, dear people, show me grace. I will tell you that the time with the campsters down in Mexico taught me a lot about grace, taught me a lot about patience. I'm a fixer like most men are. I'm the exhorter. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God has to say and expect you to obey it and believe it. And I would go down there and sit silently because there's a time to weep and there's a time to cry and there's a time to comfort and there's a whole nother time when it's time to speak about what the Word of God has to say about what you should be feeling during this trial. And the Lord taught me a lot of things during that trial. And I wasn't the one going through it. Turn over to Ephesians 4 and we have a parallel passage. If you're going to study these two books, I would study them somewhat together. They cover much of the same. They're taken from slightly different perspectives. But Paul's teaching much of the same doctrine in both of them. And so we, in, in 4, we're going to start with verse 11. Says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The gifts were given so that we all might become like Christ. There's area in my life that I'm more like Christ than you might be, but there's area in your life that you're more like Christ than I am. And I need to learn that from you. And I need to be able to be humble and submit and to see that in you. And it says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things which is the head, even Christ, and he's going to tie this again, the same idea in Colossians. He's going to tie all this necessity for the gifts back to what? The headship of Christ. The headship of Christ. And notice what it says. From whom? The whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth. It's every one. It's every one. Every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. Notice his use of every here. There's no one left out. You're all important. Maketh increase of the body unto that infine of itself in love. Paul draws a picture that says the believers are conduit. That spread and give what Christ wants to each other. It's not that we have the elders and then everybody conduits down from that. Everyone is tied into the head. And it's only as we pass on what the head gives us to the other believers are we holding the head. If we become a shortstop and we're not functioning and what the head passes to us stops with us, we're not holding the head. We're not holding the head. It's every joint supplieth. Knows both these passages. He ties the gifts and how you function 
Now, far be it from anybody to say, well, that's your opinion, just keep it to yourself. How do we know that that's not who the head's speaking to at that moment? And that's who we should be listening to and praying about and waiting. When we start dismissing brothers, and that's why this point is to trust in the fellow believers. Everyone has something to offer if they're tied to the head. And we can't be dismissal of those who might not agree with us, who might see things different, who might have a different point of view. Romans 12. There's four great passages on gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. They're mentioned in Colossians, as we mentioned earlier, and they're mentioned in Peter. Here in Romans 12, we're going to look at verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, and all the members have but one office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of another. One body in Christ. Who's the head of that body? Christ. Notice the gifts are tied back to what? They're tied back to the body and to Christ being the head. Well, you know what I get from this? If we're going to receive from someone else, we must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I struggled with that. As I said this morning, it's very clear that Bob's a much better singer than I am. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is a great passage on humility. If we're going to respect and see others better than ourselves, we have to understand the humility from the Lord's point of view. Verse 1, if, therefore, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, a fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the sum love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. It's easy for me to esteem Bob a better singer because anybody with an ear could clearly hear that. It's harder for me to see that someone's thoughts are better than mine. That someone's ideas are better than mine. That someone's way of doing something would be better than mine. Lord had to crack me over the knuckles a number of times on that lesson. And I was sure that the person who was in charge and doing it was absolutely wrong. It's a problem with pride and I have to struggle with that on a regular basis. And lo and behold, it worked perfectly. And I got my eyes open that my way of doing it wasn't the only way to get something done. And that I wasn't always right and my way wasn't always the best way. And there's times I better take a back seat and watch others. So it's not just a talent. It's just not Ricky's taller and better looking than me. It's not looking at those type of things. It's really seeing that someone has better ideas and better thoughts and better ways of doing. And that takes some humility. And that takes the same type of humility the Lord showed 
as we see in the rest of this passage. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Not to look at my ideas and my way of doing things and what I think is important. To allow God to bring someone up who sees something else as important. And to see that person, what he sees as important, could be directly from the head and could be from Christ and therefore should be my priority instead of what I selfishly thought was the most important. And so I think it's very important that we see this. We simply can't be a conduit if we don't esteem others better than ourselves. We're not going to receive from them, and we're not going to be able to pass on what they have to offer. And we can't be a conduit when we look at things selfishly. It's only when we're looking out for others that God can use us. And then the last thing we want to look at is, is, is Ephesians 5.21. Where Paul says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submission. Every time submission is mentioned, it's in the fear of God. It's not that we're submitting to each other. We're submitting to God. And we're recognizing that God is able to use the other brothers and sisters in the body. And therefore, we recognize that God will use them, and therefore, we submit to them. We submit our ideas. We submit who we are. We get an order or line behind them. We're willing to see that God would use them, that God can use them. And I'm willing to submit to their ideas because they're better than mine. I'm willing to submit to their thoughts because they're better than mine. I think that's important that we understand what God is saying. It isn't just the thought of headship. It's just not being able to say that we practice headship. But it's to recognize Christ is the head of the body because we practice headship. It's not something we should give lip service to unless we're going to practice. It's not something we can say, we don't have a pastor because Christ is the head. It's something that we have to look to each and every person. But it takes spiritual exercise. It takes patience, it takes dependence, it takes prayer, it takes endurance, and then it takes trusting each believer and being willing to submit to others and to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for your word. Father, teach us what it means to hold the head. Teach us what Paul was telling the Colossians when he said they weren't holding the head. Teach us to give Christ the preeminence that he so rightly deserves. Father, strengthen us. We're weak and without strength. 
we would be those vessels that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5, those broken vessels so that the excellency of the power might be of God. Teach us, Father, what that means. Father, take the pride that we each have and deal with it. Show it to us. Reveal it to us so that we might humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Father, we give you thanks again for your son. May his name be glorified. May our actions prove that we desire to do all things so that he might be glorified. And then, Father, we'd ask that you would teach us your ways, that we might follow in your footsteps. We thank you, Father, in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.